Welcome to part ten of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter twenty four. Jeeves's prediction that Uncle Percy would require constant exhortation and encouragement to prevent him issuing an eleventh hour null prosequi and ducking out of the assignment he had undertaken was abundantly fulfilled. And I must say, I found the task of holding his hand and shooting pep into him a bit wearing. As the day wore on, I began to understand why prize fighters' managers, burdened with the job of bringing their men to the scratch, are always fairly careworn birds, with lined faces and dark circles under their eyes. I could not but feel that it is ironical that the old relative should have spoken disparagingly of fawns as a class. Sneering at their timidity in that rather lofty and superior manner, for he himself could have walked straight into a gathering of these animals, and no questions asked. There were moments as he sat gazing at the portrait of Aunt Agatha over the study door when he would have made even an unusually jumpy fawn look like dangerous Dan McGrew. Take it for all in all, therefore, it was a relief when, toward the quiet evenfall. The telephone rang, and the following dialogue took place: "Uncle Percy, what, 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 what? Oh, hello, Clam, Clam, off stage." <coughs> About a half a minute of all this in all, Uncle Percy. Fine, good, splendid. I'll look out for you then, Clam," he said, replacing the receiver. "Says he's heart and soul in favour of the scheme, and is coming to the ball as Edward the Confessor." I nodded understandingly. I thought Clam's choice was good. A bearded bozo, wasn't he? This Edward? I asked. To the eyebrows," said Uncle Percy. "Those were the days when the world was a solid mass of beavers." I shall keep my eye open for something that looks like a burst horsehair sofa. That'll be clam. Then you've really, definitely, and finally decided to attend the binge. With bells on, my dear boy. With bells on. You might not think it to look at me now, but there was a time when no Covent Garden ball was complete without me. I used to have the girls flocking round me like flies about a honeypot. Between ourselves, it was owing to the fact. I got thrown out of Covent Garden Ball and taken to Vine Street Police Station in the company of a girl who, if memory serves me right, was named Totty. That I had the misfortune not to marry your aunt thirty years earlier than I did. Really? I assure you, we had just got engaged at the time, and she broke it off within three minutes of reading my press notices in the evening papers. It was too late, of course, for the morning sheets. But the midday specials of the evening ones did me proud. She was a little upset about it all. That's why I am so particularly anxious that no hint of tonight's doings shall reach her ears. Your aunt is a wonderful woman, Bertie. Can't think of what I would do without her. But well, you know how it is. I said I knew how it was. So I trust that all will be well, and that she will never learn the dark deeds which have been done in her absence. I think I'll have the mechanics of the thing fairly well planned out. I shall sneak down the back stairs, muffled to the eyes in an overcoat, and tool over to East Wibley in my old push bicycle. It's only half a dozen miles. No flaws in that, right? None that I can spot. Of course, if Florence saw me, she won't. Or Edwin. Not a chance. Or Maple. I was distressed to note this resurgence of the old fawn complex just when everything had seemed so hotsy totsy, and addressed myself without delay to the task of putting a stopper on it. And eventually, I succeeded. By the time I had finished pointing out that nothing was more unlikely than that Florence should be roaming the back stairs at such an hour, that Edwin was bound to take a day or two off from his spooring after the treatment I had administered the morning. And that Maple, if encountered, could readily be squared with a couple of quid. He bucked up enormously. I left him trying out dance steps on the study floor. Well, of course, you can't ginger up an uncle by marriage from shortly after breakfast to about five in the afternoon without paying the toll a bit. All this exhortation and encouragement had, as you may well imagine, taken it out of me 
not a little, inducing a limpness of the limbs and a sort of general feeling of stickiness. I didn't say I was perspiring at every pore, but I felt in need of a thorough rinse, and the river being at my very door, this was easy to obtain. A quarter of an hour later, I might have been observed breasting the waves, clad in a bathing suit from Boko's store. In fact, I was observed, and by none other than G. Darcy Cheesewright, doing the Australian crawl back to the bank after a refreshing plunge and holding on to a bush while I brushed the moisture from my eyes. I glanced up and saw him standing above me. It was an embarrassing moment. I don't know when you feel less at ease than when encountering a bloke to whose fiancé you have just been engaged. Oh, hello, Stilton, I said. Coming in? Not while you are polluting the water. I'm just coming out. Then I'll let it run a bit, and perhaps it will be all right. His words alone would have been enough to inform a man of my quick intelligence that he was not unmixedly pro-Bertram, and as I climbed out and slid into the bathrobe, he gave me a look which drove the thing home. I have already in another place described at some length these looks of his. I may say that this one was fully up to the sample he had given me outside Wee Nook on the previous day. However, if there is a chance that suavity will ease the situation... The Worcesters always give it a buzz. Nice day, I said. Pretty country, what? Ruined by people you meet. Trippers, you mean? No, I don't mean trippers. I refer to snakes in the grass. It would be absurd to say that his attitude was encouraging, but I persevered. Talking of grass, I said. Boko was in that bubbly hall this morning, and Uncle Percy trod on him. I wish he had broken your neck. I wasn't there. I thought you said your uncle trod on you. You don't listen, Stilton. I said he trod on Boko. On Boko? Good Lord. He cried with honest heat. With a fellow like you around, he treads on Boko? What on earth was the use of treading on Boko? There was a pause during which he tried to catch my eye, and I tried to avoid his. Stilton's eye, even in repose, has nothing to write home about, being a sort of hard blue and rather bulging. In moments of emotion, it tends to protrude even farther, like that of an irascible snail, the general effect being rather displeasing. Presently, he spoke again. I've just seen Florence. My embarrassment increased. I'd been hoping that the topic might have been avoided, but Stilton is one of those rugged, forthright chaps who won't avoid topics. Oh, yes, I said. Florence, eh? She says she's going to marry you. I was lacking this less and less. Oh, yes. Yes, I believe there is some idea of a union. What do you mean, some idea? It's all fixed for September. September? I quivered, trembling from head to foot. I hadn't had a notion that the curse was slated to come upon me so dashed quick. So she says... He responded moodily. I'd like to break your neck, but I can't, because I'm in uniform. Yes, there's that. One doesn't want one of those unpleasant police scandals, does one? There was another pause. He was looking at me in a sort of yearning way. Gosh! He murmured almost dreamily. I wish there was something I could pinch you for. Come, come, Stilton. Is this the tone? I'd love to see you cowering in the dock, with me giving evidence against you. He was silent for a space, and I could see that he was still gloating over the vision he'd conjured up. Then he asked me rather abruptly if I'd finished with the river. I said I had. Then in about five minutes or so, I might take a chance and go in. He said. It was, as you may imagine... In pretty fairly melancholy a mood that I donned the bathing robe and made my way back to the house. There's always something about the going foot of a friendship that tends to lower the spirits. It was many years since this cheese right and I had started what I believe is known as plucking the goings fine, and there had been a time when we had plucked them rather assiduously. But his attitude at recent get together had made it plain that the close season for goings had now set in, and as I say, it rather saddened me. 
Shoving on the shirt and bags with an unshed tear in the eye, I trickled along to the sitting room to see if Bogo had returned from his mission in London. I found him sitting in an armchair with Nobby on his lap, seeming in admirable spirits. Come in, Bertie, come in, he cried jovially. Jeeves is in the kitchen brewing a dish of tea. You'll join us in a cup, right? Inclining my head in assent of his suggestion, I addressed Nobby on a point of preeminent interest. Nobby, I said, I've just seen Stilton, and he informs me that Florence has fixed the nuptials for a shockingly early date, viz. September. It is vital, therefore, that you lose no time in showing her that letter of mine. If everything goes all right tonight, she'll be skimming through it tomorrow morning over her early cup of tea, Bertie. Relieved, I turned to Boko. Did you get the costumes? Of course I got the costumes. What the dickens do you think I sweated up to London for? Two in all, one for self and one for you, the finest brothers Cohen could supply. Mine is a cavalier, or rather sex appealing wig goes with it, and yours... Yes, what about mine? He hesitated a moment. You'll like yours. It's a pyro. I uttered a cry of chagrin. Boko, like all my circle, is well acquainted with my views on going to fancy dress dances as a pyrrhoe. I consider it roughly equivalent to shooting a sitting bird. Oh, is it, I said, speaking with quiet firmness. Well, I'm jolly well going to have the cavalier. You can't, Bertie, old man. It wouldn't fit you. It was built for a shortish, squarish reveler like me. You're tall and slim and elegant. Elegant is the word. He said, putting it to Nobby. Just the word. She assented. Another good adjective would be willowy or sylph-like. Gosh, I wish I had a figure like yours, Bertie. You don't know what you've got. Yes, I do, I reposted, coldly ignoring the salve. I've got a ruddy Perot costume. A Worcester going to a fancy dress ball as a Perot, I said, and laughed shortly. Boko shot Nobby off his knee and rose and began patting my shoulder. I suppose he could see that I was in dangerous mood. You need have no qualms about appearing in this Perot, Bertie, he said soothingly. Where you have gone astray is in supposing it is your ordinary Perot. Far from it. I doubt if, strictly speaking, you could call it a Perot at all. For one thing, it's mauve in colour. For another, but let me show it to you. I'll bet you go dancing about the house, clapping your hands. He reached for the suitcase which lay in the foreground, opened it, pulled out its contents, and stared at them aghast. So did I. So did Nobby. We all stared at them aghast. They consisted of what appeared to be a football suit. There was a pair of blue shorts, a pair of purple stockings, and a crimson jersey. Across the chest of the jersey, in large white letters, ran the legend, Borstal Rovers. Chapter 25 It was some moments before any of us broke what I believe is called the pregnant silence. Then Nobby spoke. Do either of you see what I see? She asked in a sort of hushed, awed voice. My own was dull and toneless. If what you see is a gent's footballing outfit, I replied, that is what is impressing itself on the Worcester retina. With Borstal Rovers written across the jersey? Right across the jersey. In large white letters? In very large white letters. I'm waiting, I said coldly, for an explanation, Fiddleworth. Nobby uttered a passionate cry. I can give you an explanation. Boko has gone and made an ass of himself again. Cringing beneath her flaming eye, the wretched man broke into a storm of protest. I haven't. I swear I haven't, darling. Come, come, Boko, I said sternly. I had no wish to grind the man into dust, but he had the wages of sin coming to him. A cavalier costume and a morph, if your story is to be credited... Perot have changed while in your custody into a football kit belonging apparently to an athlete who turns out for the Boston Rovers. Though I wouldn't have said offhand that there was such a team. Someone has blundered and all the evidence points to you. Boko had tottered to a chair and was sitting in it with his head in his hands. 
He emitted a sudden yip. Cat's meat, he cried. I see it all. It was that chump, cat's meat, before starting to return here. He proceeded, looking up and looking quickly down again as his eyes collided with knobbies. I stopped in at the drones to get one for the road. Cat's meat Potter Purpright was there. We fell into conversation and it turned out that he too was going to a fancy dress binge tonight. We chatted for a while of this and that, and then he looked at his watch and found he had only just time to catch his train and buzzed off. What happened is obvious. Rendered cockeyed by his haste, he took my suitcase in mistake of his own. And if you're going to make out that it was my fault, said Boko speaking now with some spirit, then all I can say is that there's no justice in this world and that it's a fat lot of use being as innocent as the driven snow. This appeal to our better feelings was not without its effect. Nobby flung herself into his arms, cooing over him to a considerable extent, and even I was compelled to admit that he had been more sinned against than sinning. Still, it's all right, said Boko, now definitely chirpy once more. Casmeet and I are about the same build, so I can wear this number. I would prefer, of course, not to have to flaunt myself before East Wibley as a member of the Borstal Rovers, but one realises that this is not a time when one can pick and choose. Yes, I can take it. I mentioned a point which he appeared to have overlooked. What about me? I've got to be there too, to pave the way for you with Uncle Percy. A lot of solid talking will be required before it will be of any use you approaching him. If I'm not at this East Wibley orgy, you might just as well stay at home. My words, as I had anticipated, produced a marked sensation. Narby gave me a sort of distraught hiccough, like a bull pup choking on a rubber bone, and Boko confessed with a moody oath that he hadn't thought of that. Well, think of it now, I said, or better. I went on as the door opened. Ask Jeeves what his views on the matter are. You'll probably have something to suggest, eh, Jeeves? Sir. A snag has arisen in our path, an act of God having left us costume short, I explained, and were frankly baffled. He placed the tea tray on the table and listened with respectful interest while we laid the facts before him. Might I take a short walk, sir? He said when we had finished. And think the problem over. Certainly, Jeeves, I replied, concealing a slight pang of disappointment, for I had hoped that he might have come across with an immediate solution. By all means, take a short walk. You'll find us here on your return. He oiled off and we settled down to an informal debate, in which the note of hope was conspicuous by its A. It could scarcely escape the attention of three keen minds like ours that what looked like dishing us was a matter of time. It was now well past five o'clock, which rendered out of the question the idea of another quick dash to the metropolis and a second visit to the establishment of the brothers Cohen. Zealous though they are in their self-chosen task of supplying the populace with clothing, there comes a moment when those merchants call a day and put up their shutters. Not even by exceeding the speed limit all the way could a driver, starting from Steeple Bumpling now, reach the Emporium in time to do business. Long ere he could arrive, the brothers and their corps of assistants would have retired to their various residences and be relaxing over good books. And as for securing anything in the nature of a costume in Steeple Bumpley, that, it seemed to us, could be ruled out altogether. At the beginning of this chronicle, I gave a brief description of this hamlet, showing it to be rich in honeysuckled cottages and apple-cheeked villages. But that let it out. It had only one shop, ably conducted by Mrs. Greenlees, opposite the Jubilee watering trough. And this, after it had supplied you with string, pink sweets, sides of bacon, tin goods, and old Moore's almanac, was a spent force. Taking it for all in all, accordingly, the situation seemed pretty bleak. When I tell you that the best suggestion was the one advanced by Boko, that I should strip to a loincloth and smear myself with boot polish, and go to the dance as a Zulu chief, you will see how little constructive progress had been made by the time the door opened and Jeeves was once more in our midst. There is something about the mere sight of this number nine size hatted man that seldom fails to jerk the beholder from despondency's depths in times of travail. Although reason told us that he couldn't possibly have formulated a scheme for dragging home the gravy, we hailed him eagerly. Well, I said. Well, said Boko. Well, said Nobby. 
Any luck, Jeeves? I asked. He inclined the coconut. Yes, sir. I am happy to say that I have been successful in finding a solution to the problem confronting you. Gosh, said Nobby, stunned to the core. Egad, cried Boko the same. Well, I'll be blowed, I ejaculated. You have? I wouldn't have thought it possible, would you, Boko? I certainly wouldn't have. Or you, Nobby? Not in a million years. Well, there it is. That's Jeeves. Where others merely spike the brow and clutch the hair, he acts. Napoleon was the same. Boko shook his head. You can't class Napoleon with Jeeves. That's like putting up a ferris-selling plater against a classic yearling. Agreed, Nobby. Napoleon had his moments, I urged. On a very limited scale compared to Jeeves, said Boko. I have nothing against Napoleon, but I cannot see him sauntering out into Steeple Bumpley at half-past five in the afternoon and coming back ten minutes later with a costume for a fancy-dressed ball. And this, you say, is what you've accomplished, Jeeves, eh? Yes, sir. Well, I don't know how you feel about it, Bertie, but to me, the thing looks like a ruddy miracle. Where is the costume, Jeeves? I have placed it on the bed in Mr. Worcester's room, sir. But where on earth did you get it? I found it, sir. Found it? Just lying around, you mean? Yes, sir. On the bank of the river. I don't know why it was, and it's possibly because we Worcesters are a bit quicker than other men, but at these words a sudden horrible suspicion shot through me like a dose of salts, numbing the nerve centres and turning the blood to ice. Jeeves, this... This thing, this, what you may call it, this, this costume of which you speak, what is it? A policeman's uniform, sir. I collapsed into a chair as if the lower limbs had been mown off with a scythe. The S had been well founded. It has since occurred to me, sir, that it may possibly have been the property of Mr. Cheesewright. I observed him disporting himself in the water not far away. I rose from the chair. It wasn't an easy thing to do, but I managed. Jeez, I said, or perhaps it would be more trustaire to say I thundered. You will go and restore that dashed uniform to its bally owner instantly. Boko and Nobby, who had been slapping each other's backs in the foreground, halted in mid-slap and stared at me. Boko as if he couldn't believe his ears. Nobby as if she couldn't believe hers. Restore it, cried Nobby. To its bally owner, gasped Boko. I simply failed to follow you, Bertie. Me too, said Nobby. If you had been an Israelite in the wilderness, you wouldn't have passed up your plateful of mana, would you? Exactly, said Boko. Here at the eleventh hour, just when the total downfall of all our hopes and dreams seemed to stare us in the eyeball because we were unable to lay our hooks on a fancy dress costume, an admirable costume has been sent from heaven, as you may say, and you appear to be suggesting that we shall give it a go by. You can't realise what you're saying. Reflect, Bertie. Consider. I preserve my iron front. That uniform goes back to its proprietor by special messenger at the earliest possible date. My dear Boko, my good Nobby, have you the slightest conception of the bitterly anti Worcester sentiment? which prevails in Stilton's bosom. The man specifically stated to me not half an hour ago that his dearest wish was to catch Bertram bending. Let him discover that I have been pinching his uniforms, and I can hope for no mercy. Three months in the second division will be the best I can expect. Nobby started to say something about three months soon passing, but Boko shushed her. Why on earth should he discover anything of the sort, Bertie? You aren't proposing to parade Steeple Bumpley day in, day out in this uniform. You're only going to wear it tonight. I corrected this view. I am not going to wear it tonight. Oh, you aren't? cried Nobby. Well then, I'm jolly well not going to show that letter of yours to Florence then. Good girl, said Boko. Well spoken, young light of my life. Laugh that off, Bertie. I made no endeavour to do so. Her words had chilled the spine. I don't suppose there's a man living who is swifter than Bertram Worcester to perceive when someone has got him by the short hairs. And it was clear to me that this was what had happened now. However fearful the perils that confronted me, 
if I accepted Jesus' loathsome gift, they must be faced. A moment's struggle for utterance, and I bow the onion and right hold. Splendid fellow, said Boko. I knew you'd see the light. Bertie's always so reasonable, said Nobby. Clear thinking chap, very level headed, agreed Boko. Then we're all set, eh? You come to the ball, of which in such a costume you could scarcely fail to be the bell, and you lurk till you have ascertained that old Warpleston has had a satisfactory conference with Clam. If all has gone well, you'll buttonhole him and give me a build-up. As soon as he is in a good melting mood, you give me the high sign, and I'll carry on from there, while you come home and turn in with an easy mind. I doubt if the whole thing, your part of it, will take more than half an hour, and now I think I'd better be stepping along and taking Stilton a raincoat. No doubt he has a spare uniform at his residence, but one would like to get him there without causing comment. We can't have chaps roaming the countryside in the nude, now can we? All right for the Riviera, no doubt, but thank God we've got a stricter code in Steeple Bumpley. He pushed off, taking Nobby with him, and I turned to Jeeves, who during this exchange had been standing completely motionless, looking like a stuffed owl. His habit on occasions when he is among those present, but has not been invited to join in the chit-chat. Cheeves, I said. Sir, he responded, coming to life in a deferential sort of way. I did not mince my words. Well, Jeeves, I said, and my face was hard and cold. You appreciate the setup, I trust? Thanks to you, I am properly up against it, as I can remember being in the course of a not uneventful career. My position as I see it, is roughly that of one who has removed a favourite cub from the custody of a rather more than usually short-tempered tigress, and is obliged to carry it on his person in the animal's immediate neighbourhood. I'm not a weak man, Jeeves, but when I think of what will happen if Stilton cops me while I am draped in that uniform, it makes my knotted and combined locks. What was that gag of yours? Part, sir, and each particular hair. Stand on end, wasn't it? Yes, sir, like quills upon the fretful porpentine. That's right, and that brings me back to it. What the dickens is a porpentine? A porcupine, sir. Oh, a porcupine. Why didn't you say that in the first place? It's been worrying me all day. Well, that, as I say, is the poshish, and it is you who have brought it about. I acted from the best motives, sir. It seemed to me that at all costs it was essential that you take part in tonight's festivities. I saw his point. If there's one thing the Worcesters are, it's fair-minded. We writhe, but we are just. Yes, I assented with a moody nod. I suppose you meant well, and no doubt in a sense you did the right and judicious thing, but you can't get away from it that mine is a fearful predicament. One false step, and Stilton will be on the back of my neck shouting for justices of the peace to come and sentence me to a long spell in the cooler. And apart from that, has it occurred to you that this cheese right is about forty inches more round the chest and eight inches more round the head than me? Clad in his uniform, and especially wearing his helmet, I shall look like a keystone cop. Why, dash it, I'd rather go to this binge as the meanest Perot. Still, I suppose my body preferences don't count. I fear not, sir, for no rash youth... If you will pardon me, sir, the expression is Mr. Bernard Shaw's, not my own. For no rash youth, that in this star-crossed world, fate drives us all to find our chiefest good in what we can and not in what we would. Again, I saw his point. Quite, I responded. Yes, I suppose the bullet must be bitten. Right ho, Jeeves, I said, summoning to my aid all the splendid Worcester fortitude. Lead me to it. Chapter 26 It had been Boko's idea that he and I should make the journey to East Wibley in his car. He at the wheel, I at his side. So if there were any minor details to be settled which we overlooked, we could get them ironed out before arrival thus achieving a perfect preparedness and avoiding any chance of last-minute stymies. To this suggestion, though admitting to its basic soundness, I demurred. In fact, when I say I demurred, I ought to put it stronger. I more or less recoiled in horror. I had been Boko's passenger on previous occasions, 
and it was not an experience one would wish to repeat. Put an author in the driver's seat of a car, and his natural goofiness seems to be intensified. Not only did Bogo persistently overtake on blind corners, he did it with a dreamy, faraway look in his eyes, telling one the plot of his next novel the while, and not infrequently removing both hands from the wheel in order to drive home some dramatic point with gestures. Another reason why I preferred to travel in the Worcester two-seater was that I was naturally anxious to get home and out of that uniform as speedily as possible. And of course it would be necessary, if all went well, for Boko to linger on and talk turkey to Uncle Percy. My qualms regarding spending the evening in Stilton's plumage had in no way diminished with the passage of time. I still viewed the ordeal with concern. Boko, returning from his errand of mercy to the zealous officer, had reported that the latter had seemed a bit upset about it all, and inclined to suspect me of being the motivating force behind the outrage. To this, Burko had rather cleverly replied by saying that it was far more likely to have been young Edwin who had done the horrid deed. There comes a moment, he had pointed out, in the life of every Boy Scout, when he suddenly feels fed up with doing acts of kindness and allows his human side to get the uppermost. On such occasions, the sight of a policeman's uniform lying on the river bank would, he maintained, call to such a scout like deep calling to deep and proving practically irresistible. He told me he thought he had lulled Stilton's suspicions all right. This, of course, was all very well as far as that went, but I could not conceal it from myself that if Stilton were to see me wearing his uniform, his suspicions would pretty damn soon be unlulled. He might or might not have what it takes to make a man a mastermind of Scotland Yard, but he unquestionably had sufficient intelligence should such a contingency occur to put two and two together, as the expression is. I mean to say, a policeman who has had his uniform pinched and later in the day comes on someone swathed in it is particularly bound to fall into a certain train of thought. No, Boko, I said, I proceed to the tryst under my own steam and I come away the moment I have completed my share of the proceedings, driving like the wind. And so it was arranged. Well, of course, it being so essential for me to get to the scene of the operations in good time, you might have known what would happen. At about the halfway mark, the old two-seater suddenly faded out, coming to a placid standstill in prettily wooded country miles from anywhere. And as I don't know the first thing about fixing a car my talents being limited to twisting the wheel and shooting the tutor, I had to wait there till the United States Marines arrived. These took the shape, at a quarter to twelve, of a kindly bird in a lorry who on being held put everything right with a careless twiddle of the fingers so rapidly that he had occasion to spit only twice from start to finish. I thanked him, flung him a purse of gold and proceeded on my way fetching up at journey's end just as the local clocks were striking midnight. The interior of the East Wibley Town Hall presented a gay and fairy-like appearance. Coloured lanterns hung from the roof. There was a good deal of smilax here and there, and on all sides the eye detected fair women and brave men. One of the latter, a footballer in striking colours of the Boston Rovers, detached himself from the throng and arrested my progress, full of recriminations. Bertie, you outstanding louse, said Boko, for it was he. Where the devil have you been? I was expecting you hours ago. I explained the reasons for my delay, and he said peevishly that I was just the sort of chap whose car would break down when every moment was precious, adding that it was a lucky thing that it hadn't been me that they sent to bring the good news from Aix to Ghent, because if it had been, Ghent would have got it first in the Sunday papers. It's going to be touch and go, Bertie, he proceeded. A wholly unforeseen situation has arisen. Old Warpleston has gone to earth in the bar and is lowering the stuff by the pailful. But that's fine, I said. The significance of his actions have probably escaped you. But I can read between the lines. It means that he has seen clam and that everything is satisfactorily fixed up. He clicked his tongue impatiently. Of course it does. But the frightful danger is that any moment he may pass out completely, and then where shall we be? I saw what he meant, and it was as if a hand of ice had been placed upon my heart. 
No wonder he had used the words frightful danger. The peril was hideous. A whole plan of strategy called for an Uncle Percy in whom the neap tide of the milk of human kindness was at its highest. A blind and speechless Uncle P stacked up against the wall in the corner of the bar like an umbrella in an umbrella stand would defeat all our aims. Go to him without a second's delay, said Boko urgently. Pray heaven it may not be too late. The words had scarcely left his lips before I was skimming barwards like a greyhound released from the slips. And it was with profound relief that I saw I was in time. Uncle Percy had not passed out. He was still up and doing, playing the genial host to a platoon of friends and admirers who had plainly come to look on him in the light of a public drinking fountain. I was just starting in his direction when the band struck up another tune and his pals swallowed theirs quick and streamed out, leaving the old relative leaning back in his chair with his feet on the table. I lost no time in stepping up and fraternizing. What ho, Uncle Percy, I said. Oh, Bertie, he replied. He shut one eye and scrutinized me narrowly. I am right, he inquired. In supposing that is Bertram Wooster rattling around inside that helmet. It is, I replied shortly. The uniform and helmet were proving even roomier than I had feared they would be, and I was about fed up with them. The almost universal merriment which greeted me as I passed through the crowd of revellers had been hard to bear. The Worcesters are not accustomed to getting the horses laugh when they lend their presence to a fancy-dressed dance. It doesn't fit. It's too large. You should change your hatter, or your armourer, or whatever it is. Still, be that as it may, tiddly um pom pom sit down and have some of this disgusting champagne, Bertie. I'll join you. I thought it best to speak the word in season. Haven't you had enough, Uncle Percy? He weighed on this. If what you mean by that question is, am I stinko? He replied. In a broad general sense, you're right. I am stinko. But everything is relative, Bertie. You, for instance, are my relative. I am your relative. And the point I want to make is that I am not one bit as stinko as I'm going to be later on. This is a night for unstinted rejoicing, my dear boy. And if you think I'm not going to rejoice, and unstintedly at that, then I reply, watch me. That's all I say. Watch me. The spectacle of an uncle, even if only an uncle by marriage, going down for the third time in a sea of dance champagne can never be an agreeable one. But though I mourned as a nephew, I'm bound to say I found myself pretty bucked in my capacity of ambassador for Bogo. Pie-eyed, even plastered, this man might be, but there was no mistaking his geniality. It was like something out of Dickens, and I saw he was going to be clay in my hands. I've seen clam, he proceeded. You have? With the naked eye, and I refuse to believe that Edward the Confessor really looked like that. Nobody presenting such an obscene appearance as J. Chichester Clam could possibly have held the throne of England for five minutes. Lynching parties would have been organised. Knights sent out to cope with a nuisance with battle axes. Is everything all right? Everything's fine, except I'm beginning to see two of you, and one was ample. I mean, you've had your conference. Oh, our conference. Yes, we had that. I don't mind telling you, if you could hear me from inside that helmet, that I put it all over him. When he looks at that agreement we sketched out on the back of the wine list, an agreement I may mention legally witnessed by the chap behind the bar and impossible to get out of, he'll realise that he's practically given me his bolly shipping line. That is why I say, and with all emphasis at my disposal, tiddly um pum pum, fill your glass, Bertie, don't spare the vitriol. I felt that a word of praise would not be amiss. However mellowed a man may be, it never hurts to mellow him a bit more by giving him the old oil. Smooth work, Uncle Percy. You may well say so, my boy. There can't be many fellows about with brains like yours. There aren't. Very creditable to you, the whole thing. I mean, considering your condition. 
you allude to my being tight? Quite, quite. But I wasn't tight when I was dealing with Clom, though my shoes were. I seem... He said, his lips contorted by a spasm of pain, to have come out in a pair of shoes about eleven sizes too small, and they're nipping me like nobody's business. I'm going to go look for a quiet spot where I can take them off for a bit. I drew my breath in sharply. I had seen the way. I suppose this is how great generals win battles, by suddenly spotting the right cause to pursue and immediately pulling up their socks and snapping into it. You see, what I had been alive to all along had been the danger that this man, as soon as I switched the conversation to the subject of Bogo, would turn on his heel and stalk off, leaving me flat. Catching him with his shoes off, this problem would not rise. An uncle by marriage with only socks on finds it dash it difficult to turn on his heel, especially if he's sitting in a car. And it was into a car I proposed to decant this Percy. What you want, I said, is to go and sit in a car. I haven't got a car. I tooled over on my push bike, and a hell of a sweat it was, toxing the unaccustomed calf muscles like Billy O. I'll find a car. Not that rotten little two-seater of yours, I trust. I should require space. I want to stretch my legs out and relax. The calves are throbbing. No, this is a bigger, better car altogether. The property of a friend of mine. Will he object to my taking my shoes off? Not a bit. Excellent. Lead the way, my boy. Before starting, however, I'd better procure another quart of this gooseberry cider and take it along. If you think it advisable. Not merely advisable. Imperative. One doesn't want to lose a moment. I had no difficulty in spotting Boko's car. It was a thing about the size of a young tank which he had bought second-hand in his less oofy days and refused to part with, because his admirable solidity served him so well in the give-and-take of traffic. He told me once that it brushed ordinary sports models aside like flies, and that his money would be on it even in the event of a collision with an omnibus. I ushered the old relative into its cavernous depths, and he removed his shoes. Not till he was safely reclining on his spine, twiddling his toes out the window so that the cold night air could play on them, that I start to bring up the big item on the agenda paper. So you slipped it across to Clam, did you, Uncle Percy? I said. Splendid! Capital! And after accomplishing so notable a business triumph, you are, I take it, feeling pretty benevolent toward your fellow man. I love them all, he said handsomely. A look on the entire human species with a kindly, unindulgent eye. Well, that's fine. Always accepting, of course, the foe of the entire species, that hellhound Fiddleworth. This wasn't so good. Would you make exceptions, Uncle Percy, on a night like this? On this or any other night, and also by day. Fiddleworth invites me to lunch and... I know, he told me and wantonly causes spiders to emerge from the salt cellar. I know, but... Rolls my grounds, officiously locking my business associates into potting sheds. I know, quite, but... And on top of it all, lurks in the grass, like a ruddy grasshopper, so I can't start a step without treading on him. When I reflect that I have not dissected Fiddleworth limb by limb and danced on his remains, my moderation astounds me. Don't talk to me about Fiddleworth. But that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to plead his cause. You're aware, Uncle Percy, I said, bunging a bit of tremolo into the old voice, that he loves young Nobby. So I've been informed. Dash his cheek. It would be an ideal match. You and he may not always have seen eye to eye in such matters as spiders and salt cellars, but you can't get away from it that he is one of the hottest of England's young literatos. He earns more per annum than a cabinet minister. He ought to be ashamed of himself if he didn't. Have you ever met a cabinet minister? I know dozens, or not one of them, that wouldn't be grossly overpaid at 30 shillings a week. He could support Nobby in the style to which he is accustomed. No, he couldn't. Now ask me why not. Why not? Because I'm jolly well not going to let him. But he loves Uncle Percy. Has he got an Uncle Percy too? I saw that unless prompt steps were taken, we should be getting muddled. 
When I say he loves Uncle Percy, I explained, I don't mean he loves verb transitive Uncle Percy accusative. I mean he loves, comma, Uncle Percy exclamation mark. Even while uttering the words, I had had a fear lest I might be making the whole thing a shade too complex for one in the relative's condition. And so it proved. Bertie, he said gravely, I should have watched you more carefully. You're tighter than I am. No, no. Then just go over that observation of yours again, slowly. I would be the last man to dispute that my faculties are a little blurred, but... I only said that he loved and shoved in an Uncle Percy at the end of my remark. Addressing me, you mean? Yes. In the vocative, as it were. Yes, that's right. Now we've got it straight. And where does it get us? Just where we were before. You say he loves my ward, Zenobia. I reply, all right, let him. And I hope he has a fine day for it. But I'm dashed if he's going to get married to her. I take my position as guardian of that girl pretty seriously. You might say I regard it as a sacred trust. When confiding her to my care, I remember her poor father, as fine a fellow as ever stepped, though too fond of the pink gin, clasped my hand and said, Watch her like a hawk, Percy, old boy, or she'll go marrying some bally blot on the landscape. And I said, Roddy, old man, his name was Roderick, just slip her clothes into the lease, saying that she's got to get my consent first, and you need to have no further unease. And what happens? First thing you know, up pops probably the worst blot on any landscape that has ever afflicted it. But he finds me ready, my boy. He finds me ready and prepared. There is my authority in black and white, and I intend to exercise it. But if father wasn't thinking of a chap like Boko... There are limits to every man's imagination. Boko is a frightfully good egg. He's nothing of the kind. Good egg. Tell me a single thing this Fiddleworth has ever done that entitles him to consideration and respect. I thought for a moment. And when the Worcesters think for a moment, they generally spear something good. It may be news to you, I said, that he once kicked Edwin. This got home. His mouth opened and his feet twitched, as if stirred by a passing zephyr. Is that true? Ask Florence. Ask the knives and boot boy. Well, I'm dashed. He sat for a while, deep in thought. I could see that this revelation had made a deep impression. I confess. He said at length, raising the bottle to his lips and swallowing about a third of its contents. That what you tell me causes me to look on the fellow with a somewhat kindlier eye. Yes, to some extent, it has modified my views regarding him. It just shows that there is good in all of us. Well then, on consideration, he shook his head. No, Bertie, I cannot give consent to this match. Look at it from my point of view. The fellow lives at my very door. Give him an excuse like being married to my ward, and he would always be popping in. Every time I took a stroll in my garden, I should be watching my step in case he happened to be hiding in the grass. Every time he came to lunch, my eyes would be riveted to the salt cellar. No nervous system could stand it. I saw the talking point. But you haven't heard the latest, Uncle Percy. Boko leaves next month for Hollywood. Do you realize that America is 3,000 miles away, and that Hollywood is 3,000 miles on the other side of America? He started. Is it? Absolutely. He sat for a moment, twiddling his fingers. I make that six thousand miles. That's right. Six thousand miles. He said, rolling the words round his tongue. Why, this alters everything. You think Zenobia loves him? Devotedly. Odd. Oh, very strange. And his financial position is as sound as you suggest. Sounder. Editors scream like frightened children when his agent looks in to talk terms for a new contract. And about Hollywood, you're sure your figures are right? Six thousand miles. A bit more, if anything. Well then, dash it, in that case. I saw that the iron was hot, and that the moment had come for Boko to strike. I'll send him to you, I said, and you can have a talk and rough out the arrangements. No need for you to move, this is his car. By Jove, Uncle Percy, 
You'll be thankful for this later on, when you realize what a bit of goose you're handing two young hearts in springtime. Tiddly on pom pom, said the relative, waving a cordial toe and once more applying his lips to the bot. I did not let the G grow under my feet. Hastening back to the ballroom, I sorted Burko out from the revelers and sent him off with many a hearty tails up and godspeed. Then, unleashing my two-seater, I drove home, thankful that a sticky bit of business had been safely concluded. My first act on reaching Journey's End was, of course, to tear off the uniform. Having crept to the river bank and consigned it to the dark waters, which might or might not eventually cast it up on some distant shore whence it would be returned to its owner, I whizzed back to my room and darted into bed. It was not immediately that the tired eyelids closed in sleep, for some hidden hand had placed a hedgehog between the sheets. Practically, you might say, a fretful porpentine. Assuming this to be Boko's work, I strongly inclined to transfer it to his couch. Reflecting, however, that while this would teach him a much-needed lesson, it would be a bit rough on the porpentine. I took the latter out into the garden and loosed it into the grass. Then the day's work done, I turned in and soon sank into dreamless slumber. <laughs>